Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an exciting episode covering an incredibly hot topic in shoulder surgery, which is instability with bone loss. And as the pendulum seems to be swinging towards doing more bony procedures than ever before, particularly around the world, we're excited about what our guests have to say about this topic. We've invited two surgeons that are world-famous experts in shoulder instability and bone loss. First, we have Dr. Ivan Wong, who is a sports medicine surgeon and associate professor at Dal... Is it Dalhousie? Am I pronouncing it correctly? At Dalhousie. Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, as well as the current president at the Arthroscopy Association of Canada. Dr. Wong, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. In addition, we have Dr. Ruth Delaney, who is a consultant orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist at Dublin Sports Shoulder Institute in Ireland, founder of the Dublin Shoulder Institute and associate professor at the University College Dublin. Dr. Delaney, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to join you. Well, let's get right into it. Let's talk about shoulder instability. Tell us about your preferred approach to the patient with bone loss. You're going arthroscopic, open, labor repair, bony augmentation. Ivan, tell us what you're doing right now. Yeah, well, um, I'm trained in SCOE, uh, so very big uh, arthroscopic approach to shoulder instability, uh, lateral decubitus approach, really, just because uh, the belief there obviously has been to be able to see it better uh, from the front of the shoulder, looking from the top down from the anterior superior portal. And with that approach really is just the idea is to fix what is broken. So most of the time, if you're able to get an early uh, primary uh, mode of fixation for people with shoulder instability is an arthroscopic soft tissue uh, bank heart repair with an inferior to superior capsule shift. Obviously, you're talking about bone loss right now. So the biggest concern is where the bone's coming from. And my primary uh, method of fixation right now is a bone block. So a distal tibial allograft arthroscopically through the rotator interval or through the Halifax portal uh, to avoid any damage to the subscapularis muscle. And Ruth, what about you? What's your approach in terms of shoulder instability? Are you more of an arthroscopic person, more of an open person? Are you going right to bony augmentation? What's your preferred approach? So I have a mixture of both, and I guess I have influences in my training from the U.S. and from France, and having spent time with Gilles Valls, um, the open ladder J is very much part of my practice. Um, in Ireland, the vast majority of our instability patients are male collision athletes. So the three main sports would be rugby and the two Irish sports, which are Gaelic football and hurling. And those are pretty extreme collisions. Um, when I came back first, I felt that, you know, unless there was significant bone loss, then I would perform arthroscopic surgery and be happy to do arthroscopic bank art, arthroscopic bank art plus sort of, you know, fixation of the bony bank art. Um, and when I looked at them in the beginning, it all seemed to be going great. At about two years in, I noticed a re some recurrent instability in that particular group. And that was the majority of our patients. And we looked at it after three years, about 20% of those collision athletes had some element of recurrent instability. Um, and that pushed me more and more towards having a lower threshold for an open ladder J because the, the, you know, the evidence is there for it. The, the results are there long-term documented. And so, um, I think when I started practice seven years ago, people with 
significant bone loss got an open ladder J. Now I'm starting to lean towards any collision athlete gets an open ladder J. Um, I haven't quite gotten all the way there yet. The toughest one, I think, for me to make a decision on is the collision athlete with no bone loss or really just subcritical minimal bone loss. Is it overkill to do a ladder J on them? If I do a ladder J and they get a complication, then I'm going to feel like, well, you know, could have gotten away with uh, something less. Um, but a lot of those guys also come and ask for a bony procedure because their teammate or their friend had it. I, I want the three-month one, not the six-month one. So I get that sometimes as well. So both of you, or I think I heard both say something about timing and early. And one of the, uh, I think, questions for our U.S. listeners versus our international listeners is this concept of early. Because a lot of patients in the U.S. come into clinic for their shoulder and, and they want their surgery done yesterday. They don't want to wait. They want it done right now. And obviously, you know, they, they in the Canadian system, I know it's a lot different, for example, than in the U.S. system where patients dislocate their shoulder over the weekend and often can get in on Monday to come see me. So what defines early for both of you and how can we um, advise our, our listeners here, especially those in the U.S. who might be a little intimidated about going in maybe less early than they would like to, to, to do a primary repair um, or do an arthroscopic repair? Ruth, let's start with you on that one and then we can go to Ivan. Yeah, I think if you're looking at somebody who is in the category where you're going to offer them surgery after one episode, um, it depends what you want to do. If it's a latter day, it, it's, you know, I don't think it matters as much with the timing. Um, if it's something where there's a, an acute fracture rather than the recurrent dislocator, then it's nice to get to those, you know, within the first, for me, two or three months, um, because it's going to be more likely that that bone is still of any use on the front of the glenoid and you might be able to fix it rather than going to, to a bone graft. Uh, but I wanted to ask you a follow-up question. You'd mentioned that the arthroscopic labor repair, the arthroscopic bank art repair, still plays a large role in your management here of instability. And you talked a little bit about your technique, the anterior superior portal, the lateral decubitus position. When you when you do that procedure, tell us a little bit about that. How many anchors are you using? Which portals are you using? You using a five o'clock, a seven o'clock? How are you Absolutely. passing your procedures? No, th those those are those are very good questions, and that that's the whole point of it. I think. Sometimes now we do so much, or at least in North America, we do a lot of uh, arthroscopic bank art repair. Some of the courses that we go to uh, really breeze over it a lot now because that used to be a very uh, a technical demanding thing. But now that's really taught in, you know, early in residency. And, and the techniques uh, are kind of uh, uh, skipped over when we do when do we go do courses. So the idea behind it, uh, looking at it, is, is we're trying to do an arthroscopic procedure to replicate the open bank art repair. So my technique is exactly the same, where our goal is to do an inferior to superior capsular shift on the glenoid side, just like the open repair. I do the portals are allowing us to see the places that we want to see similar to an open procedure. So I use uh, lateral decubitus, anterior superior portal is my viewing portal, anterior inferior portal is as far away from the anterior superior portal as possible so that you do not get scissoring of your instruments, making it difficult for you to reach deep under. And if you're able to get those two portals far apart, so you're actually putting that inferior superior, oh, sorry, anterior inferior portal in just over top of subscap, and then you can slide subscap down so you can reach the six o'clock position, then I find I don't need a five o'clock or a seven o'clock portal where I have to go through subscap to get that six o'clock anchor. In fact, many of these times now if they get recurrent dis dislocations but not having glenoid bone loss i can actually do that release all the way around the six o'clock position 
close to the nine o'clock position. So going all the way around the horn to the back and then start getting in posterior inferior uh, anchor in. So not at six o'clock, but at seven o'clock position. So I really get that inferior glenohumeral ligament uh, fixated both posterior and anterior to the, to the most inferior aspect of the glenoid. And when you do that, you can shift that tissue all the way from back to front and then superior. And now, because I've been doing this anatomic glenoid reconstruction, we do this episiotomy of that labrum at the one o'clock, just anterior to the uh, biceps tendon. I can actually measure the amount of shift we do. So I usually use a traction stitch right at three o'clock. So before we do any of the releases, I put a traction stitch at three o'clock. And then uh, because we have CT scans, I do know that the measurement usually from the three o'clock position to the 12 o'clock position, which is where I'm planning to do the inferior superior shift is approximately two centimeters. So most of these patients, I can actually measure the amount of shift that we do from the uh, anterior labral uh, uh, capsular complex that we're actually shifting it anywhere from one to two centimeters, sometimes even a little bit more than that if they do recurrent instability. Great pearls for our listeners, for sure, especially those trying to accomplish a lot through the scope. Ruth, one of the things you mentioned, I think, is a problem for all of us, and that's deciding what to do with that collision or contact athlete with no bone loss or very minimal bone loss. And I think um, a lot of people are very dogmatic. The contact athlete gets a bony procedure, and they don't really consider the bone loss. And then people are on the other side where no bone loss, soft tissue procedure, it doesn't matter what sport. And I think those of us who are more thoughtful, like you mentioned, that's a really big conundrum because you can't be so dogmatic. So does open soft tissue stabilization play a role in your practice for those athletes? In the States at the NFL Combine, that's a big uh, hot topic is, you know, sometimes ladder J's have complications and sometimes arthroscopic stabilizations fail in these patients with contact sports, but minimal bone loss. Does open soft tissue stabilization play a role in your practice? Or if you're opening, you're going to a ladder J? So I've changed over the past few years. When I first came back, it was, if I'm opening, I'm going to a ladder And the arthroscopic bank art I was doing was very similar to what Ivan described, except that I was doing a beach chair, but what I was doing was really getting around the back. So I would switch my portal's view from that anterior superior and work from the back to put a posterior inferior anchor in. And what would be interesting when I started using a knotless technique, say, the labral tapes, I'd put my anterior inferior labral tape in first, because if you shift the back, it's going to be hard to get as low from the front then. And then just leave that, don't put it in an anchor yet, switch your portals. And when you're looking from the front, you would see that that lowest um, tape that you put in really would be at six o'clock. You can get there in the beach chair. Um, so I would, t- I, first time we were looking at, th- at it that way, I took a picture and sent it to Dr. Romeo just to be like, see, it's possible in the beach chair. But so, yeah, so the, the bank card, the arthroscopic bank card, I felt like, you know, I was doing everything that we could do, poster and pure anchor whenever the tear went by six o'clock, you know, good capsular shift. And yet still, they were failing. Um, and I had a healthy respect for the latter J because of the stuff that we did in Boston with Dr. Warner, where we looked at what you do to the nerves when you alter the anatomy by taking the coracoid. Um, and the history in Ireland was with these uh, collision athletes, the mainstay had been for a long time open bank art. The main proponent of shoulder surgery, probably the father of Irish shoulder surgery, a doctor named um, Jimmy Colville. So Mr. Colville always uh, did open bank cards and had really great results. And so in this population, it was sort of hard to ignore that. Um, so I started in the past couple of years to do open bank cards in some of those um, players where I feel that the latter day is overkill um, and it's hard to justify doing it. The other shoulder surgeon who does a lot of them in Dublin, he would look at it that um, 
when they're younger, he prefers maybe to look at doing an open bank art instead of a ladder J. But the counterpoint to that is then we know that when they're younger, the risk of recurrence is higher. So I haven't figured that out yet. We're about to start looking at it. We have an instability registry of all these athletes um, and some a, a new biomechanics lab where they're doing a lot of uh, cool testing with the shoulders. And that's the population we want to look at now is the subcritical or no bone loss collision athlete. Um, I think we've discounted arthroscopic bank art for them and even just to compare open bank art versus open ladder J for them. That would be a great study. And I can only imagine Dr. Romeo's response to when you sent him that picture. Ah. Well, <laughs> you know, I sent it from like, uh, I don't know how many thousands of miles away. So it was pretty from a safe distance, you know. <laughs> Perfect. Ivan, same question for you. Um, does open bank art play a role in your practice? Or if you're, you know, if you are opening, is it a bony procedure only? Yeah, I'll, well, I'll tell you, I, I haven't done an open uh, instability surgery in a long time. Um, with training now, it's really true. Uh, we spend so much time, at least in North America, the places that I've gone to focusing on arthroscopic bank art repairs, and uh, I really have not had that much uh, chance to do many open surgeries. So um, actually, very similar uh, story with uh, what Ruth was saying. Um, coming back, uh, we did lots of bank arts, thinking that we had great techniques to be able to uh, get these bank arts uh, appropriately repaired, even with you know tiny little bits of bone loss, so not not up to 20, not even 15. And, and again, sure enough, two years afterwards, we're starting I need to see some failures and and very true um so that's where um i took time to go out to spain and learn learn the arthroscopic ladder j um our patients here weren't as uh, weren't as accommodating to switch to uh, open surgery myself being uh more comfortable doing arthroscopic i wanted to move down that path so actually i moved from arthroscopic bank heart to arthroscopic ladder j and we actually had to switch everything around since i was a uh, lateral decubus surgeon i actually uh, changed all the techniques to do an arthroscopic ladder j in the lateral decubus position which is very possible and actually not too difficult to do uh, we actually had great results using it that way, doing the same thing with uh, that uh, LaFosse was doing uh, with two screws going through the subscap. And uh, I was quite happy with that, uh, that approach. Uh, the only problem with that, though, is we realized that when surgeons would come and try to learn this uh, technique in a lateral decubus position, not a single surgeon took that up in their practice. So I, I looked at that saying, so either I'm horrible at trying to teach this approach or this is just too scary and dangerous that nobody wanted to do it in North America. So that's where this uh, distal tibial graft and, and um, anatomic glenoid came around is we started looking at Preventure's uh, work with his distal tibial graft. We started to try it to do it through the interval using a Halifax portal to be able to get in. So we're no longer going through uh, the subscap, no longer near the nerve, no longer changing the anatomy. Um, so honestly, now we've even avoided doing any ladder jays. We haven't done a single arthroscopic ladder jay in probably five years and our distal tibial anatomic glenoid reconstructions for collision, non-collision, recurrent dislocation with all bone loss. We, we've had a huge success. We really have not had a failure of that. Actually, I'm, I'm telling you now, we got one failure, just came back last week. Um, this uh, young gentleman uh, had multiple dislocations before, multiple surgeries before. We did a, a, a distal tibial graph with two screws, did really well. He actually disappeared, didn't see him for four years, just came back last week because he had a new diagnosis of a seizure. So had a seizure, had a collapse, a huge impact on his shoulder and actually broke it. Um, so I think that's not really to do with the surgery per se, but uh, it was quite a, quite a large fall. Uh, but again, we've had good results with this. So we really haven't looked at open 
we've really gone from either arthroscopic bank heart and now really focusing on bone loss, not only on the glenoid side, but also on the heel sac side, also on the humeral side. Because I really think if we look carefully, there's actually more bone loss there. This bipolar bone loss is real. And if we address both and there's not much bone loss on the glenoid side, we actually get significantly better results. Not perfect, nothing is perfect, but again, with less risk, because I do think that risk aversion is a very real thing. You know, open ladder J, it, it, it is quite scary if, uh, if we don't do it very often. Yeah, I think that's what? one of the points um, would be this open ladder J. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, um, the more when I started out, I reserved them for the big bone loss cases. And then the more I started doing as my threshold lowered, the more comfortable I got. And then the less scary it is. And, uh, you know, that's part of obviously Gilles Valtry is an incredible surgeon. But, you know, the reality is Gilles will tell you I do nothing except open ladder J. And then he has perfected it. And so I think... Um, it's, it's hard, and it's, I think the same must apply also to arthroscopic bone block or ladder J techniques. You cannot be an occasional ladder J surgeon or an occasional distal tibia allograft surgeon. Um, I think that's kind of a, one of the things as well, that the more you do it, the, the better you get at it, and if your threshold's lower, then the better you're going to be at it too. So it's interesting. I want to talk a little bit about thresholds, because I think that's been in the literature, and certainly I think for surgeons starting out, where, where the number lies, how you arrive at that number. So Ruth, tell us how a patient comes in, they've got a CT scan. How do you approach that CT scan to then make your decision about what the number is? And then what number is the number that makes you say, we need a ladder J? I mean, I'll be honest that the sort of uh, on-track, off-track stuff and measuring bipolar uh, bone loss, I find that difficult to do to implement that in, in real day-to-day -day practice uh, when you actually get in there intraoperatively. Um, I'll look at the glenoid and look at a perfect circle and I'll make a sort of a judgment on, on the hill sacs, which is probably more of a subjective judgment. And then I'll combine that with the actual person attached to the shoulder, how much I trust them, what they're going to do with their shoulder afterwards. Um, and so probably, I think, you know, even getting beyond 10 to 15% bone loss in a collision athlete on the glenoid side or minimal glenoid bone loss on a large hill sax, that either of those will get a ladder J from me. What about you, Ivan? What's the, what's the number for you? How do you arrive at the number? No, absolutely. And uh, when I first started doing this, uh, my number was high because we're, you know, we're just starting with a distal tibial graft. So we really reserve them for failed uh, uh, instability surgery, anyone with around 20% or more of bone loss. Um, since we've been doing this for, for quite some time now, we're, we're showing our midterm results. It, it's been doing so well with really no complications going through um, that really now anytime I see bone loss on the glenoid, I'd, I'd consider doing it. We're actually doing a randomized study right now comparing subcritical bone loss of direct an, uh, anatomic glenoid reconstruction using distal tibial graft versus just doing a bank heart soft tissue with remplissage, plus or minus remplissage, depending on the patient, uh, to compare the outcomes. And we're, we're about two thirds of the way done. And, um, you know, just anecdotally, I haven't looked at the data, but I, you know, obviously I see these patients for follow-up and I can see failures already starting. And I can already start to predict failures because um, we also collect the Wozy scores. I, I start off going to see the patient. I, you know, we get the score. So I know the score going in to talk to the patient. I'm like, oh, this person's already not doing all. Well. Even though they say, look, I haven't had a dislocation. I already know the Wozy score is still higher than 
the rest of the patients like this person's pending failure i want to follow them up through two years and we've you know it's been a while doing the study some patients are already to three and you can see them failing even after the two year with that soft tissue repair. it's kind of just like the literature it's just surprising when you go in and look at these patients with subcritical bone loss you're talking like 10 percent, and 10 percent is really only three to four millimeters of bone loss that's not much um that that it's that significant so now i'll tell you if somebody's not part of a study anyone who i who i can detect bone loss i have it ready and the nice part about doing distal tibial allograft arthroscopically is literally it adds maybe 15 minutes to the procedure i don't change setup i don't change anything i add one extra tray that gets brought in the distal tibia comes from the fridge um, if i don't have distal tibia i just harvest iliac crest so adds very little to the procedure uh, very little my nurses aren't really worried about it and you know assistants are it's no big deal doesn't really change our day One, thing that, one of the things that I think is interesting that both of you said, in which I think is so um, telling about maybe clinical practice in general, is you know when you read the literature, it acts as though, well, you make the measurement, and the measurement is over 20, then you do this, and people draw these charts with algorithms. And I remember when I first started in practice, I had a case where I was like, I'm not sure what to do. And I asked my senior partner, Bob Burks, and he's like, well, you could draw these lines however you want to draw them, and they're going to look different. <laughs> and he said, just look at the patient, and the patient will tell you what to do. <laughs> Uh, and and I that's such a I, I'm so relieved to hear both of you say that that there is no number there is no line that you need to look at the patient attached to the shoulder I thought Ruth that was like the perfect line about how you make your decisions with regards to what you do that's a that's a JP Warner line you know it's a, tell me about the the person attached to the shoulder that's a JP has to get credit for that one but it it works for everything not just instability. All right, guys, I want to get into some debate a little bit open versus arthroscopic. So this is a hot topic. And I think all of us as shoulder surgeons love to approach things arthroscopically if we can for a variety of reasons. But when it comes to bone augmentation, whether it's Latterge or a free bone block, whether it's distal tibia or iliac crest or distal clavicle or whatever it might be, it can be intimidating to make that switch to arthroscopic since we're so much more familiar with Latterge, uh, or excuse me, so much more familiar with open. So um, we have an arthroscopic really only surgeon for bone loss here, and we have an open surgeon who's also an arthroscopist for instability repair. Tell us, why is your technique better? So let's start with Ivan. Why arthroscopic over open? Right. So I, I know this is always a, 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 a thing that gets brought up at meetings, and um, I think we're, we make it up. So what, what's the difference between arthroscopic and open? It's, it's how you look at it. So instead of having my eyeball stuck on my head, I now have my eyeball at the very tip of a camera that I can put inside wherever I want. So I think that's the real difference is um, I can now direct it to see whatever I want to see. And if you get comfortable doing that, you can make that take that to your advantage. So now I can take my hand instead of using my scalpel to do, I can put it through a portal anywhere in the shoulder. Just like we finished talking about which portals to use, you can actually get anywhere. I can use anterior superior portal, anterior inferior portal, posterior portal at five o'clock, seven o'clock. You can go 360 degrees around a shoulder doing arthroscopic. So, so, so what I'm trying to say is, Arthroscopic and open really aren't different. It just depends on what you get good at. And when you get good at arthroscopic, it's a tool. I think I'm just better at seeing something arthroscopically than I'm seeing something open because I do a cut in the front of the shoulder. However big I make it, however many retractors I put in there, I can't see the whole shoulder the way I can see arthroscopically because I can see it perfectly in line. I can make sure my graft is perfect. I, I look at my CTs afterwards. They're, they're nice and flush. 
I've looked at my open stuff before. They're not flush. My core cords, when I put them in, they look, they, my CTs of my, my, uh, my ladder J's are not perfect. My CTs of my arthroscopic procedures look significantly better. So I really just think it's, it's a skill set that you do. And if you spend more time doing it, just like Ruth mentioned before, doing open, you get better at it. And, and by spending more time arthroscopically, I think that's where I've gotten. But I think it's the same approach uh, just using a, a tool. Ruth, before you answer, I think from across the world, we had someone listening in and lurking and heard about the measurement of glenoid and humeral head bone loss. And we have a cameo to our podcast, Dr. Giovanni Di, or Dr. Giovanni Di Giacomo from Rome. Are you with us? Yes. We see you on. Yeah, Welcome. I'm, I, I, sorry for this. I was with Nadal Djokovic because we have the Italian Open tournament now. So I am in the locker room. So I don't know how many minutes I can share time with you, but thank you for uh, staying with you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining in. This is incredible from around the world covering professional <laughs> tennis and, and the professional tennis player. Um, well, we were just getting into this debate on open versus arthroscopic bone augmentation procedures for bone loss uh, in the setting of instability. But right before that, and I think you knew we were talking about it, we were trying to talk about quantifying and measuring glenoid bone loss. And does it really even matter anymore? Or is it really about patient-specific factors when making your surgical decision? So tell us, with the few minutes that you might have with us, do you, um, you've published a lot and you've, t you've talked a lot about the on-track, off-track lesions and measuring glenoid bone loss. What's your take on this? Do the measurements really matter when it comes to making your surgical decision? Or are you doing more ladder J's than anything else due to the patients that you treat? I think, as you know, that is a very complex uh, issue. Anyway, I think that the glenoid track concept is very important, not because it's so precise, because there are many different uh, um, uh, situation that can change uh, the glenoid tract. I think that is the personal glenoid tract in each patient. It's up to the dyskinesia of the scapula because you can move uh, the scapula. It means the glenoid in different uh, uh, fashion. You can have a different degree of laxity in this change the glenoid tract. So I think the glenoid tract concept is very interesting, but of course, uh, now times is not so precise, but the concepts uh, is important and of course I keep uh, uh, in my mind as concept when I have to decide for the indication of what kind of surgery I have to perform in my patient, my patients. I mean, bancard, bancard remplissage, or latage. And um, I was listening in the last talk, and I agree completely. You have to do what works uh, in your hand better. For example, I do a lot of latage and. Uh, this doesn't mean that I perform only open latage, but of course, in the set of my patients that are usually very young, they mostly 80% are male, they play traumatic sport very often, even if they are on track, but there are all the easy score uh, factors that lead the points more than three, I shift uh, to the latage technique. And in my hand works very, very well the mini open latage with the plate, we have more than 2,000 cases with very uh, good WOSI score with low grade of recurrence, so there is no reason for me to change in arthroscopic. But this doesn't mean that I don't trust in arthroscopic latage, even if my sensation is that it's a very complex surgery and you need to perform a lot of number of this kind of surgery to overlap your results with the latage open. 
Dr. Jackman, I wanted to ask you a follow-up question about that because I think everyone's talked about the that, that when you do more of something, you get better at it. What for you? What, describe for us your learning curve with the mini open latarge. How how many cases was it before you felt like your complications dropped, or you, your operative time dropped, or your patient improved outcomes improved? Is there a number? How many how many per year do you need to do to be good at that? I, I, that's an excellent question. I think first uh, of all, you need a good teacher. You need a very good men mentor that uh, need could give to you the basis, uh, the cultural basis uh, uh, to make the best patient selection. Regarding the surgery, I think I call the Latarge, mini open Latarge, as the retractor surgery. The key point is that you have a very small incision that is very deep and you need to be very precise. So the key point is to learn how to put and when to put and when to remove the retractor to have the best view on the most anterior uh, part of the glenoid. I think that uh, a good number is between 25 and 40 to have uh, uh, confidence with your surgery every year. Ruth, same question for you. What do you think is the learning curve for open Latterge or even for arthroscopic Latterge? And, um, and how do you advise our younger listeners who may not be as busy in their first few years in practice so they're not getting those cases or their senior partners are getting those cases because that's who patients want to go see more so than the new person? How do you advise your, your young trainees and younger surgeons and what do you think that number is? Okay, I think that the key point is that to have confidence with the anatomy of the shoulder, so to work on the specimen is very, very important. That the good number to perform, uh, to have confidence with the surgery is uh, between, as I told you, uh, 25 and 40 Ks a year. You need a good mentor that can help you during the surgery. And I think that is very important that you are very, very confident with open lotage before shifting to arthroscopic latarge. Because if you are not confident with open latarge and you have some difficult during the arthroscopic technique, it's very, very difficult to shift in my hand from arthroscopic latarge to open because uh, the bleeding, because of course, uh, uh, after two, three uh, hours of surgery, it, everything became much more complex. Ruth, what are your thoughts? How, how, you know, you'd mentioned that ways you lower your threshold to become more comfortable. How many per year do you think you need to feel comfortable doing an open latarge? Yeah, I think minimum 25 and ideally closer to 40 or 50. But it's the, the practical things that Rachel mentioned are real. You know, when you start practice, you don't just say, okay, I want to do 40 a year and they show up. Um, and so I think that if you are a young surgeon and you're starting out, um, you base what you start doing on your experience in fellowship and, and your mentors. And then if you are not making those numbers in the initial years, your options are, you know, get in the lab and practice and make sure that what you think is best in your hands really is. Or if it's your senior partner who's getting all of the instability cases and doing all the latter J's, you know, hopefully you have that relationship with them where you can say, hey, can I double scrub some of them with you? Um, and, you know, the very fallback is, is what the videos, but that's just not the same. And I think, you know, there's no substitute for just having to do them yourself. The first time I did an open mini open ladder J in practice, you know, it was a big guy. They almost always are big guys in, in my practice. And um, Gilles makes it look easy and it's not always that easy. You know, um, it took me longer, 
than it takes me now. It was harder to see. And the retractors, it, the moves with the retractors are just key. And you learn to have all of that set up. So if you're starting out somewhere in practice where there isn't an established shoulder surgeon that you trained with, so maybe you do things differently, it's really important, I think, to make sure that they get all those retractors that you're using and that you set yourself up as best you can for those initial ones, because they're going to be the hardest ones. Your first five ladder J's, whether you do them open or arthroscopic, are going to be your hardest ones in practice. Certainly, that's what that last situation mentions one place where some things like the SES mentorship program can be really helpful, I think, to young surgeons. Ivan, as, as the one who's doing the arthroscopic procedure, tell us your perspective on the learning curve. Absolutely. So <clears throat> I think I think that's the nice part about doing arthroscopically, at least in North America, lots of our uh, trainees coming through are quite adept at doing an arthroscopic bank art repair, you know, getting all the portals, getting around. And, and in fact, more and more now realize the difference that you can see uh, with lateral cubis. There's no question you can do the same in a beach chair. Ergonomically, it's just a little more awkward to put the scope in the anterior superior portal to be able to see all the way down. But when you do a lot of, after you do a bunch of arthroscopic bank art repairs and you're ready to move on to learn the next step, the nice part about doing an anatomic glenoid as opposed to an arthroscopic ladder J is that it really doesn't change much compared to the arthroscopic bank art repair. Most, uh, so we've done a learning curve analysis on this. And, and what we found is that it, it's not that difficult to learn. The biggest thing that we use to measure the ability to learn this technique is how often we can get the graph to exactly where you want it to go because the surgical times really doesn't change. So if you measure it just by surgical times, it doesn't it doesn't seem to be that difficult. So getting the position of the graph perfect is a better way to get an idea of if you figured out all the nuances to get the, the graph to the right position, all the different techniques to use. So we find that if you do nine of them, your graph is almost always in the right position, where at least where you intended it to be put. So it's much less than what uh, what uh, Lafosse had done for the arthroscopic uh, uh, ladder J. And there's no question, we've done the arthroscopic ladder J, no surgeons really uh, came to learn and then took it up in their practice. But when you do the anatomic glenoid and you're an adept uh, arthroscopic bank heart surgeon, almost half of the surgeons can do it after trying it once in the lab. They're already feeling comfortable enough to do the portal. And then all you do after you figure out the portal is you put a couple half pipe cannulas, these, uh, these um, uh, 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 um, slotted cannulas in and guide the graft exactly through that portal. And then you're already there. Okay, another controversial question for all of you. So for all of our speakers. So a lot of proponents of the ladder J believe in the ladder J's effect for a variety of reasons. And one of those is recreating the bone that's lost on the anterior glenoid rim, but also the sling effect from the conjoint tendon. So Ivan, we're gonna start with you because you're not doing ladder J. And so the sling effect is not part of your stabilization. It's not part of what happens. Is the sling effect hocus pocus? Do you believe in it? Or tell us, tell us what are your thoughts here? Absolutely. So, um, well, I just go back to anatomy, just like uh, how we do, how all other surgery has been done in the past. Uh, we always think as surgeons, we can do things to patients to be able to make them more stable, stronger, whatever. So ACL surgery used to be non-anatomic. And then you look at everything in the literature now, they all move towards an anatomic ACL reconstruction where all the anatomy is. So I think everything moves that direction. Similar with shoulder instability. Before we had the ability to do things arthroscopically to recreate the same size glenoid to be able to get the bank heart, the soft tissue exactly in the right spot, we then had to develop a technique to be able to recreate this, which is where, where Ladder J came from. And it's a fantastic surgery. It stood the test of time, no question. That is the gold standard. But 
Now that we've been doing this anatomic glenoid where I can recreate the same size of the glenoid that is exactly like the other side, and we get the tensioning of the soft tissue both on the humeral side and the glenoid side exactly like the other side and get the rehab going, I really think that this is good enough because in, sh in shoulders that don't dislocate or have not dislocated, you don't have a conjoint sling and they stay the same or they stay stable. If you have a dislocation, you lost bone, but then you're able to recreate, recreate the bone, recreate the soft tissue tensioning, you don't really need that soft tissue sling. And they actually just did the study. It's actually the ASES near award paper 2019, a randomized control trial study, uh, level one, uh, comparing uh, uh, ladder, uh, open ladder J versus open bone block, so no sling. And there's no difference between those two groups of patients. The same radiographic results, same clinical results, no dislocations. So that's a fantastic paper to show that you do not need this. And in our midterm series of papers coming up, we're showing the exact same thing. Patients with big bone loss, you don't need a sling if you're able to recreate that bone and soft tissue. Ruth, what are your thoughts on this, especially for those patients with minimal bone loss, but are a contact athlete? And so you're restoring the glenoid with bone anyway, using a ladder J. Do you think it's more the ladder J, meaning more the bone part of the ladder J, or do you think it's more the sling effect in those patients who don't have a lot of bone that you need to replace in the first place? It, you know, it's, it's probably mostly the bone, even though, I mean, the original studies out of Mayo were biomechanics studies and lab studies that really sort of showed that the sling effect was important. And now we're seeing in clinical studies that that doesn't necessarily translate. Um, a lot of the recurrent dislocators I see and the rugby players and so on, their labrum is so beat up and their capsule is such rubbish that I don't really have a labrum and capsule to work with. Sometimes I've gone in sort of thinking I wanted to do a bank art, but actually the labrum is such poor tissue that they have to have something else because they don't have decent labrum. And so then you're getting, you know, your bone block, but you're not getting to do the things that Ivan was talking about in terms of retensioning the soft tissue, the labrum and the capsule, because you don't have it. And I wonder if that's where sometimes the sling comes in when there's just nothing on the front of the glenoid at all. And so you want to have everything you possibly can if they're missing, you know, the, the opportunity to be lost, sorry, the opportunity to recreate normal anatomy has been lost because normal anatomy has gone. Great point. I think and you're Giovanni, exactly how right. You? Oh, yep. Go ahead, Ivan. Yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, that, that is the, that, that's the whole uh, point with this is that the ladder J is a phenomenal technique. Again, it stood the test of time when there is no anatomy left to work with because we can recreate bone, but when soft tissue is gone, that's really the time that ladder J comes in because you are trying to replace something that you cannot repair anymore. Great points for sure. Giovanni, your thoughts, any, any concern about um, not having a sling effect if you're using a free bone block, or do you think, do you agree with what was just said? I agree what you said. I think that is very important. There are two points I would like to remind. One is the, where you, where do you perform the split of subscap? It's, I think it's very important where you perform the split of subscap and where you place the coracoid. Regarding the last point, I uh, did some study and we realized that the best mechanotransduction, the best biology is in the most inferior part of the coracoid, the biology, and the best biomechanics is exactly where the glenoid bone loss is. So in our hand, the trick is to place the bone block close to the tendon where you have the best vascularity exactly where the bone loss is. So you can the best bio, you have the best biology and the best biomechanics. Regarding the split of subscap, we according to 
uh, gel wash, we do the, the split at level of two-thirds superior and one-third inferior. Only if there is associated some patholaxity, we do the split in the half of the subscapula. And always we perform a split, never tenotomy. I wanted to ask about he, fixation, because I think that's something that it sounds like is it's certainly been in flux recently with the introduction of the button here in North America. Um, Dr. Giacomo, I know you've also pioneered changes in fixation with the plate. Tell us what fixation are you using and why? I use the plate because uh, for two main reasons. First one, uh, sometimes the coracoid is weak, especially in uh, no young people, and is small. So I think that two screws are so much important, but if the coracoid has a poor bone quality of the bone, I prefer to spray the compression force, not only in two holes to avoid the breakage of the coracoid, but to spread the compression force along the plate. And for this reason, we never had a breakage of the coracoid. And I think that especially if you perform the lasage in patients that don't have huge glenoid bone loss, but you have minimal glenoid bone loss, I think I, around 10%, 50%, where the glenoid is steep, the medial wedge of the plate helps to tilt the coracoid on the middle side and keep very good contact between the glenoid surface and the most deeper part of the coracoid. So the contact is very, very strong. What about you, Dr. Delaney? What are you using for fixation on your ladder shades right now? I'm using Me? I use, two oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. For fixation, I'm using um, two solid uh, four or five screws. Um, when I started in practice, that was my preference, but I work at two centers and one center had a different system of screws and they had 4.0 millimeter screws and that's what the other guy was using and I thought okay that's fine and then probably about two years in one of the rugby players managed to break one of those and I said okay that's it get me the four or five screws I, you know that's what I'm used to that's what I'm happier with partially threaded solid cancellous four or five screws like Jill Valsh uses um, that does mean that you're drilling you know with a 3-2 drill and if the core code is small um, so occasionally um, but it's rare that I'm doing a ladder jet in a female, but occasionally you might want to have slightly smaller screws. But for me, in the population I take care of, I prefer not to have cannulated screws. And a lot of the systems that have sort of guided um, placement, which makes it much easier, um, then you end up having these cannulated screws. And I worry about those in my population. With the talked to Pascal below about the button, and he is absolutely sure that it's strong enough in rugby players and but uh, for me it's still the traditional um, solid screw and then Ivan for your arthroscopic technique what what's the size of the screws how tell us about those yeah so uh, my preference is to use uh, it's a cannulated system just like Ruth mentioned um, it's a 4-0 screw uh, it's a titanium screw with titanium washers that actually thread into the bone graft um, it, it's it's just quite nice because you get fantastic fixation and when you use distal bone graft you really don't worry about uh, breaking the coracoid anymore because you know coracoids are quite small and if you use a larger drill that's 
that's uh, that that risks it. So what I do is I make the bone graft bigger. So so instead of using uh, most people use a typical one centimeter uh, medial to lateral dimension, I use 15 millimeters. So so about one and a half times the size. So it's a thicker graft, and I cut it in a trapezoidal fashion so that more of that bone is in contact with the anterior rim of the glenoid. Um, and what we found is that because you get more contact of bone, you get more healing. Uh, so there's more union of bone all the way down the anterior rim of the glenoid, kind of recreating that triangular shape in the front of the glenoid. And by having the bigger piece of bone, I can really compress this thing. So I don't do two finger tight. Uh, you can actually hear it squeaking all the way across the room with how tight we're, we're actually compressing these things. Uh, we actually bury the head of the screw just a little bit underneath the cortex of the allograft. Because, uh, I again, the biggest worry of these screws is being prominent afterwards. And, and really, the, the only complication we've ever had, we haven't taken out six pairs of screws so far on the past, I think it was like 200 and some patients. So it's not that that many screws that we've had to take out. But initially, when we we're starting to do this, we we're trying to make a supersized graft in there, thinking that that'd be more stable. No question is more stable, but the body wants to remodel the glenoid to be the normal size again. And so the remnant part of the screw sticks out, and then we've had to remove those. So now that we actually compress it down, and we're only trying to get to the native size of the glenoid now, we really haven't had to deal with that. And I really like the fact of this because, you know, if they need future surgery, we really have not changed the shoulder anatomy. So the future shoulder, shoulder surgeon, if they need to come open, they still have the lighthouse to the shoulder. They don't have to worry about the changes in the neurovascular structures or any of those dissections to go down and have a nice carry approach to the shoulder. Some great pearls from all three of our guests. You know, as we start to wrap up, and I know at least I think I can speak for Pete, but I know the two of us could go on and ask you guys questions all day, but we do want to respect your time and we appreciate you taking the time with us. Any final thoughts on instability and bone loss for our, our listeners today? Let's let's start with Giovanni. Any final thoughts for our listeners today? Oh, I think that uh, a young surgeon, these moments of the shoulder history are very, very lucky because there are many very interesting articles, many very interesting paper, publication, chapter, that can give, you, can give the young uh, surgeons uh, the culture that is the basis uh, to treat the instability. So you have to study, then you need to pass patient selection, and of course, then you have to improve your skills in your hands to get the best surgery. Wonderful, thank you. And Ruth, how about you? Any final words of wisdom for our listeners out there? I think it's obvious that there is no one right way for shoulder instability for, and for a lot of things. And so rather than being hung up on figuring out which is the best, I think you have to figure out which is the best in your hands, given your training and your skill set, and then get as good as you can get at that. That's the, the best advice I can give. Wonderful. And last but not least, Ivan, any final parting words for our listeners? Absolutely. So I'd echo everything said before, really try to be the best surgeon you possibly can. I really do think shoulder instability is uh, coming around. It is it is a very exciting topic to talk about. Again, I could talk about it for hours. I really think that the paradigm is changing, though. We are now having the ability or the techniques to recreate anatomy, and that really changes the thought process. So instead of just saying, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, iliac crest is just for the failure of latter jays, 
you actually have the potential to say, you know, a bone block could be the primary idea for uh, instability with show, uh, with uh, with bone loss. And then only when that fails and soft tissue is gone, now we can go to the latter J to recreate that stuff. So again, we don't have the answer to this now. This is a super exciting time for shoulder instability surgeons. I think over the next five, 10 years, we're going to have answers to these things definitively. So uh, it's just going to be a good time. Well, thank you all for joining us. This was awesome. I can't tell you how much I appreciate all of your thoughtful approach here and certainly your enthusiasm for each of your respective approaches, each of which is clearly well, well thought out and has led to great outcomes in your hands. So I think appreciate you taking the time here uh, to sit down with us and talk about this interesting topic. Thank you very thank much. You. Sorry for my delay. Thank you very much. And uh, give, a give a look to the Italian Open Tennis Tournament. Rafa is in the final. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> ciao, ciao. Grazie. Well, that's about all the time we have for this podcast today. Thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Wong and Dr. Delaney, as well as our cameo guest, Dr. DiGiacomo. Outstanding shoulder surgeons from literally around the world coming together for this ASES podcast. I'm already thinking about tweaking my techniques based on what I've listened to today, so I'm super excited to get in the lab and then get operating. Thank you all very much. For our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.